0: Hey parents, it's Robin McMahon here. Before you dive into this episode, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for listening to my show, Parenting Our Future. And did you know that you can watch this show as well on YouTube? If you wanna watch this episode instead of listening to it, you can head over to my YouTube channel, Parenting for Connection, where you will find all of my podcast episodes as well as a library of my videos that have tips and parenting strategies on how to parent even the most difficult kiddos. You will learn how to get better behavior, better listening, so that you can feel more calm and confident in your parenting, no matter what you're facing. So I hope to see you over on YouTube. Now back to the show. You know, I I think uh, one of the things that as parents, we can be really worried about is eating disorders with our kids. You know, it's something I think a lot of us don't know enough about. And I know it's always something that's kind of on my mind, kind of looking at my kids, looking at their friends, looking at my family even, and just, you know, kind of just seeing like what's going on, what's going on with them. And, you know, food in and of itself is such a charged sort of topic. And I have somebody here who is going to help with all of this because I'm not very eloquent in this area. I don't know very much about this and uh, I've I am bringing you a really amazing expert. So I have Dr. Elizabeth Easton, who is a clinical psychologist and she serves as the national director of psychotherapy and at the Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Mood and Anxiety Center. So she's she knows what she's talking about. Dr. Easton is a certified advanced psychotherapist, supervisor and trainer in emotion-focused family therapy, and a certified eating disorder specialist. As a clinician, leader, and educator, Dr. Easton has dedicated her career to the power of caregivers as agents of change and healing for their loved ones. And she's also a mom to a nine-year-old son. I just want to welcome you, Dr. Easton. Thank you for being here and talking about this and teaching us and me.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: It's just such an important topic. You know, we hear a lot about it. And again, I, I, I think that there is sort of this like background anxiety and worry that, you know, our child might be impacted by it. And so let's talk about eating disorders in general. And what is like, what is the root of an eating disorder? Why do some children, adolescents, why do
1: some people have it? And why do some not? It's a great question. I think when you learn about eating disorders or, you know, people who either have one or have a loved one with one, um, you start to wonder, well, why them? Uh, Will this happen to my children? You know, what is the course of it? And, you know, I think ultimately the root of it is distress tolerance, being able to manage distress, being able to cope with distress um, and eating disorders, the behaviors associated with eating disorders, are one way of managing that distress, whether it's anxiety or sadness or um, you know a host of different emotions that we all manage on a daily basis. Um, the feeling like you have the ability to feel those things, work through those things, um, is a big deal. You know, we refer to it as self-efficacy feeling like you could face a challenge and if you face it, it'll go well. So in this realm, we talk about emotional self-efficacy. Can I feel this, the challenges, the stressors, particularly for kids, just the challenges of growing up, the pressures, the expectations, the comparisons, all of the things. Um, So when we look at children who form eating disorders, it's really their best way to try to uh, navigate a stressful world and um, not feel overwhelmed um, or pulled underwater. And so they feel like these behaviors either soothe them or help them focus on something that they can they have a sense of control over, um, or, you know, help them feel like they could avoid something bad happening, like rejection. Um, you know, so I think there's a variety of reasons why if you ask someone who suffers, what they feel like the behaviors do for them, but ultimately, what's kind of across the board is it helps them feel less overwhelmed in the short run. Really, I'm
0: writing this all down. It's uh, okay, so so na- so they're navigating a stressful wor- world, it's soothing for them, it gives them a sense of control when maybe they feel out of control, a lack of control, yeah. Um. They do it to avoid something bad happening, either perceived or actual, um, and they do it to feel less overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. How does it make them feel less
1: overwhelmed because they have control? I don't, yeah, I don't get it. It's something for their brain to focus on or hyper-focus on, even to the point of maybe obsess around what their body looks like, what food they've taken in. Um, so there's this sense of it, it can pull their attention away from all of the other things in their life that they don't know how to manage, they don't know what to do with. Um, So I had one patient actually just say to me yesterday, you know, I, I realized when I'm overwhelmed, I start planning and I start figuring out the details of things and how I'm gonna do them and what I'm gonna do. And I realized when I was in the thick of my eating disorder, that's what I did with my eating disorder. It allowed me to manage my stress by doing all this planning and all this hyper focusing on something else. Well, now that I don't do that anymore, I see myself doing it with friendships, with school, with all these other areas. And I realized this is just what I'm doing to cope. And so, yes, it was about her body and food, but she also realized underneath that this was just a protective coping strategy Mm. she had come up with at some point in her life. And now it can be applied to anything. Um, And so now it's working on the pattern of that, not just about what it's attached to.
0: So that's interesting. That sounds really hopeful that you can actually take what, yeah, take the, what, what you did to cope and actually transition into something healthy.
1: Yeah. What can it be used? When is it helpful? When is it helping you? And when is it tipping over to getting in in your way to keeping you from the functioning or the things that are important in your life? That's a big part of the recovery process.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what are the I have so many questions at once. What, (laughs) what are the red flags? Let's start with that. And then I want to ask you after that about some of the things that come with an eating disorder, because it sounds a little bit like the obsessive thoughts. It sounds a little bit like OCD. So, Uh, um, so first I want to just ask you, okay, what are the red flags? Mm -hmm. What comes with it? And then I got, I got like a hundred more questions. (laughs) (laughs) Sure.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I'd I'd say first and foremost, since I'm talking to a bunch of parents, like trusting your gut, trusting your instincts, I feel like so much of the work that I do is helping parents notice when something doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And just first and foremost, trusting that intuition Mm -hmm. and then looking for, okay, what is it that doesn't feel right? So Um, People who suffer from eating disorders may start comparing themselves to other people, how they look, what they eat, what they do and don't do in terms of like exercise and movement. Um, So you can start to see that comparison. Now, that's also really common in a lot of children and adolescents that they're comparing themselves to try to figure out who am I? Do I belong? Mm -hmm. But this comparison would be particularly around food and body and size and shape. And then frequent negative comments about their own body or about um, how they fit in certain clothes or um, their appearance in general in terms of various areas of their body. Um, discussing unhealthy weight loss strategies. So talking about the kind of fad diets or obsessing around, um, you know, this is good food, this is bad food. Mm. which is very much a part of our culture. And so that can be kind of hard to tease out. And then starting to avoid social activities, engaging with other people. So becoming more isolative. So not wanting to do the things they usually love doing Mm. or doing things they don't usually love doing, or they used to be something they just did like running and now it's become excessive. They Mm. have to do it. They have to do more of it. Um, and you know, I think in general, this is really tough with adolescents, irritability or excessive mood shifts. (laughs) I recognize what I'm saying Uh, there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But the mood shifts seemingly around, um, food or body size and shape kind of activities in particular. So if those things tend to trigger these reactive moods.
0: Wow. Yeah, th- that's a lot. Okay. So negative comments about their body comparison with others, w- w- talking about weight loss strategies, avoiding things they love or hyper focusing on things that they love, like something like exercise, that yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, and then mood swings and irritability. And, and that, well, yeah, if you're hungry, you know, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's just it. Like, that's an uncomfortable feeling. Yes uh, is that a welcome feeling in a way?
1: You know, I think depending on the patient, some would say it's welcomed. Um, so a patient, and I know we'll get into the types of eating disorders, but a patient with anorexia may feel like if they're hungry, they're quote unquote, doing something right. Mm. Um, a patient who, uh, tends to binge, that's a very overwhelming feeling of feeling hungry, because they could potentially lose control and start binge eating because of that urge. And so it really depends on the person, I'd say almost always, it's a combination of both. It's a welcomed Uh, and a very scary triggering feeling at all at the same time.
0: Yeah, oh my goodness. Okay, so what comes with eating disorders? It sounds like there's some comorbidities.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's Recognizing, I mostly worked in higher levels of care, meaning you know above the typical once a week therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd say you know strong majority of my patients have had anxiety disorders, depressive disorders. Um, many have had traumatic events or uh, more chronic trauma, complex trauma. Um, many have uh, neurodiversity, so everything from ADHD to autism. Um, so really kind of a a host of diagnoses. So if you think about what we initially talked about with, this can be a strategy of coping of making Mm -hmm. it through distress, really all of these other diagnoses could be a part of the picture. And this is just one thing that kind of got brought into the mix to help them manage it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when I look at anxiety, depression, trauma, all of those things, You know, how how do you, how do you handle a situation where you have an adolescent who is struggling with their mental health, has an eating disorder, maybe is cutting, maybe is using substances, Mm -hmm. has dangerous behavior. Where do you start?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's definitely not um, a set answer. I think ultimately it comes down to a really good assessment of what is the most lethal in terms of what they're doing. So, and I know using that word is scary and overwhelming for parents, but as a clinician, that's where we start is what could not just get in the way of your functioning, but what could actually lead to irreversible medical concerns. Um, or lead to, you know, high potential to actually lose our patients. And uh, eating disorders are the second highest lethal mental illness, um, it's only se- second to opioid abuse. Um, so that is something that most people don't understand about eating disorders—really how deadly they are. And it's that combination of psychological distress and hopelessness, which can come with it, kind of suicidal thinking and suicidal mm. action. And then you've got this whole other piece around medical instability that comes with changing your body size and shape through the use of food um, or the use of what we call compensatory behaviors. So self-induced vomiting, diet pills, laxative abuse, even overexercise on a body that's starved can lead to cardiac issues and a host yeah. of other medical concerns. So that's where we all start. If the eating disorder is really significant it, it kind of trumps everything else. We have to start with stability medically and psychologically around the eating disorder. And then we're looking at all of the other factors as well. Now if the substance abuse is, is potentially even more significant. Okay, then we're starting there and then we're weaving in the eating disability and medical stability with it. So ultimately we're triaging, we're figuring out what needs to be managed first in order for us to have time to work with all the rest.
0: Well, that makes sense. Um, and that is, that's difficult to hear, you know? Um, and, uh, and as parents, when your child is suffering, we have to take action. We have, uh, and, you know, one of the things that I know to be true with every cell in my body is that the deeper you are connected with your child, the more you can connect this, the more they will want to come to you and use you for support instead of going to other behaviors, activities, other people. Um, you know, h- how do you sort of see the role of the family in yeah. this? And and you know, just reading your bio and and you know, with what. You've talked about, you know, having caregivers of agents of change and healing. What what can parents do?
1: So that's really what I've dedicated the last half of my career to, um, particularly after I found a modality called emotion focused family therapy. Um, so this modality, also known as EFFT, um, I met an incredible woman named uh, Dr. Adele France, and she was working in higher level care hospitals in Canada working with eating disorders and the comorbid diagnoses. Um, And she started to develop EFFT because she was working with caregivers who were stuck. You know, they they had skills Mm -hmm. that they were using with their loved one and they weren't working in the context of their loved one having an eating disorder. They loved them. They were connected deeply before this eating disorder came in and the eating disorder just put this giant wedge between the two of them. So She really saw the behavioral work as important, helping them learn to eat and interrupt behaviors. And that's a part of the model. But one of the major foundations of it is supporting their loved one with processing emotions. So Mm -hmm. we look at emotions like fear or sadness or, um, you know, the host of emotions, hopelessness, helplessness, all of these things, shame as Dr. Brene Brene Brown has brought to so many of us. Mm -hmm. We look at those emotions, and if they don't actually get identified and we don't move through them, particularly with people who can support us with talking about them and working them through, then they get stuck inside of us. And then we have to manage them with a lot of these symptoms that we're talking about related to things like eating disorders. So the idea behind EFFT is to use the caregiver as the agent of change and healing for both behavioral work and emotional processing. So we actually teach a skill for how to engage their loved one with their emotions. And then many skills in addition to that, to what gets in the way for the caregiver, what could keep them from engaging with their loved one because it's scary or it hasn't done well in the past or it tends to lead to big blow ups or more isolation, you know, all of those things. So we focus quite a bit on taking care of the caregiver as well.
0: I'm so glad you said that because as you were talking about, I'm like, uh, yeah, but what if they're not like, what if they don't know how to do that? Like, let's be honest as parents, we didn't know this was going to happen. You know, I I mean, I say it all the time. It's the most important job we do. And we do it with zero training, zero preparation for the real hard stuff. That can be life and death. And so, you know, I, I always, you know, obviously with the work that I do, you know, starting young and connecting with your kids, learning who they are, you'll never waste that time. Like that's never, you know, never something that you'll regret doing is connecting with your kids because it, right. it lasts for so long. It makes such a difference. So I love that. And and I wonder too, if, if you have a family hypothetically, that has a child that's in crisis and you have one parent that is doing the EFFT Mm -hmm. and one parent doesn't. How does that work?
1: Well, let's say that that's that's actually a very common scenario. One parent will seek us out and kind of be a big part of the treatment process um, and the other parent is supportive, but kind of in the periphery. Um, My first question is, what is happening for the parent in the periphery? Do they feel like their perspective or their skill set um, is not as uh, as well used in this scenario? Um, do they feel like there's room for them to step in and be able to support from their perspective or their ideas? Um, are they feeling helpless like they've tried and their skill set wasn't working and so they've just stepped back mm. not because they don't care but because they feel like they could make it worse or they feel like it was just getting more complicated with them involved or they're just feeling a lot of shame like I just I don't know what to do and I, I'm gonna step back because I just feel paralyzed by it so mm. usually i I didn't see that those parents as um, not willing or not getting it, they're actually just more afraid of something worse happening. Mm-hmm. And so they pull themselves back so that they don't make things worse for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, or they think, all right, well, I'll just be in the background and I'll just support from back here and that'll be enough. So as you can tell, one of the first things I do is try to figure out how to pull that other one in. I love that. Because disorders can divide and conquer. They can divide parents and split caregivers Mm -hmm. um, so that they can continue to thrive. And so when we align the caregivers using the same skills, same, same perspective, there's nowhere for the eating disorder to go, Mm. what we're looking for.
0: I love that. So you're really giving care and compassion to everybody, even- the parent that seems maybe a little checked out or overwhelmed by it. And, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, you feel powerless as a parent. You, you got to get used to feeling powerless. That's for sure. But when yeah. you're faced with something like this, it it is, I mean, it it's, ugh, it's life-changing, isn't it?
1: I think it's staying as a clinician, staying constantly curious, what may be happening here, what's contributing to how they're showing up. And then as a parent staying constantly curious, what's happening for me, what's happening for my co-parent, what's happening for my child, just always being ready to not actually know, but to constantly be willing to re-engage to try to figure it out from a place of love and compassion. Everyone's doing the best they can with the skill set they've got. We just sometimes need to help give them some new skills or advance their skills.
0: Yeah. And I think if you look at it, like it's an invitation, it's an invitation to having a more connected relationship, it's an invitation to understanding your own feelings and needs Mm -hmm. and those of others. It really actually makes life more rich and you actually might find yourself more happy and more capable and more able to handle the adversities of life because you have more coping skills. Would you say that?
1: Absolutely. That's what I hear from most parents. Many of them will start in a space of, well, how am I going to help my daughter process her emotions when I don't even know what I'm feeling? On yeah. Day? And then they go through this process and they realize, not only do I understand her, I understand myself better. I know how to now cope with things myself. And I'm modeling that for her. or We're doing it together. Mm-hmm. And so then you see this whole other trailhead, for the parents to go down to enrich their own lives. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. You know, I just, I I think of, you know, the saying, it's not happening to you, it's happening for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not easy to look at that, but, you know, look, with my own neurodiverse child and the struggles that I've had in my own parenting, you know, I look at my one child who has really taken me to the brink of of, of many different things. Um, He's my greatest gift because he every day is a reminder that I want to do better, you know? So, yeah. um, Greatest so this favorite. is, yeah, 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 really, truly. So, um, so I, I want to kind of get into what, um, what are the different kinds of eating disorders? You know, I think of anorexia, I think of bulimia. Is mm-hmm. it just those two? Are there different kinds? I don't know. Yeah,
1: even... There are a few other types. Um, I would say to start off, um, getting a good diagnosis, having a clear sense of what the behaviors are and what the symptoms are is very important. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, it's, there are many things that are commonalities between them. And so ultimately the diagnosis is more of a shorthand between clinicians on what are we working with and what do we need to make sure we resolve than an end all be all. And I also say that because sometimes we'll have patients start with one diagnosis and as they're moving through their treatment process, the recovery process, they may shift into other symptoms. And it's not that now they've picked that one up. It's mm. just the symptoms have shifted on their road to recovery. Right. Um, so it can be helpful to not get too stuck in like it's this versus this, Yeah. but giving you the shorthand, helping to decode how we all talk to each other. Yeah. Um, anorexia uh, is um, characterized by uh, law- significant weight loss. Mm -hmm. in a short period of time, usually, um, that is, you know, well below what is appropriate for that child's height, and their weight trajectory to that point forward. So you're looking at weight trends, and you know, the graphs your pediatrician shows you, here's what there's their height, and here's their weight trend, you want to see that curve continuing. So if they're falling off the weight trend, um, and that's also affecting their height, Um, That's usually when you see this diagnosis brought up, Uh, restriction of food, um, and uh, overall a distortion. So when they look at their bodies, they see them as much larger than they actually are to the rest of us. So they have a distortive perspective of what their body looks like. Um, And what can come from that is a desire to lose weight. So constantly Mm -hmm. driving to lose more and more weight. So that's kind of the anorexia restrictive type. There's another subtype within anorexia that's binge purge, mm. which means they will restrict, and then they also have times where they will binge eat and eat large amounts of food in one sitting, um, and or they may use compensatory behaviors that I mentioned before, like self-induced vomiting, diet pills, laxatives abuse and over-exercise, excessive exercise. So that's anorexia, binge purge. And this is where it gets tricky. That's why I mentioned this can kind of get morphed, right? Bulimia is characterized by that binge purge cycle as well. Mm -hmm. They just tend to not be as low body weighted. Um, They can restrict a little bit and restrict some, but they have more of a cycle of eating large amounts of food and then getting rid of it, quote unquote, in some way. Um, So that's anorexia, that's bulimia. Then we also just have binge eating disorder, which is doing that binge eating process, but not necessarily using the compensatory behaviors um, to kind of get rid of the calories. They're just having these episodes of binge eating. Okay. And then the last type is um, pretty different from all of the rest. It's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID. And so for many of us, we may think of this as picky eating. I would actually take that to say it's picky eating to an extreme where there can be significantly low body weight, significant malnutrition because they only take in certain types of food and that's it. Um, And the difference with ARFID is that many of the patients with ARFID actually want to gain weight. They know they're at a low body weight. They want to gain the weight back. They just can't. So that may be because they literally don't have a drive to eat. Some patients, particularly neurodiverse patients have been found to have um, this kind of restricted type where they just don't have a drive to eat. So they have to eat on a schedule. Um, There are other patients who have sensory sensory, uh, sensitivities. Mm -hmm. So certain um, textures, certain colors, certain smells or tastes, they have a significant aversion. Um, So again, you see that often with a neurodiverse population, but not always, sometimes they're not, Um, or they have actually a phobia. So some ARFID patients are afraid of choking or afraid of vomiting, and that can lead to them not taking in certain types of food and then becoming malnourished. So ARFID is kind of its own animal. Um, It was, a lot of these symptoms were under feeding disorder for many, many years. Um, And then in this last diagnostic manual, they actually pulled it in under the eating disorder category, um, which there's some controversy over whether it makes sense or not. But ultimately it gave all of us eating disorder clinicians more education and information about ARFID. And now more and more patients are actually getting the diagnosis, which is really helpful.
0: Wow, oh my goodness, wow. Uh, Okay, so uh, how, how do you talk to your child? We we Mm -hmm. talked about the EFFT, right? But your child is in front of you, you think there's a problem, you know, how do you broach the subject?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is where it can feel a little bit like you're walking on eggshells. Yeah, say the wrong thing. I also don't want to not say anything. And so first I'd say to parents, like, what would you naturally do to bring a hard subject up to your child? You know, what would you do in any of these other areas around school, around friends, around health in general? So I want them to try to pull back up their natural parenting capability. Mm -hmm. It's really not just about how you broach it. It's then how do you work with whatever happens next? So you broach, hey, I have a concern and I want to bring it up. You know, mm-hmm. some version of that, or I've noticed, or I'm wondering, and you're bringing it up that way. And then there can be the choose your own adventure of how your, your loved one responds. Mm-hmm. So they may respond with immediately shutting it down. No, it's not a problem. It's fine. And, and just trying to deny it. Um, or they may respond with immediate anger. How dare you ask me about that? Leave me alone. Or they may respond with falling apart, you know, with crying and getting really overwhelmed. Um, So it can be a variety of ways that they respond. And that's usually where I recommend that emotion-focused family therapy piece because we teach something called um, emotion coaching. Mm -hmm. So based on what they serve up, what is at the surface, you'd respond with, I can understand why you would feel that way. I can understand why you'd think that way. Or Mm. I can understand why you want or don't want. So if they shut the conversation down right away, you could respond with, I can understand why you don't want to talk about this. Mm. And then you don't just shift to, but here's why we're going to talk about it anyway. (laughs) Slow down. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Because I can understand why you don't want to talk about this. Because maybe this feels really uncomfortable. Mm. And because maybe you don't really know what's happening to you. And because this feels really vulnerable and it's overwhelming to try to put it into words or because you don't want me to see that you're doing these things. Mm. You know, trying to put yourself in their perspective of why would they not want to talk about it and say it out loud to them. Put it on the table as this is okay to discuss. And that's how you help them process through the emotion.
0: Mm. So this is, this is so great. I I have a a steps to validating your child's emotions Mm -hmm. and it, it is starts with validating what they've just said. Right. So I understand you don't want to talk about it. And then because is the bridge it's never, but it's because, and then two to three reasons why. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you literally just did that. And it was beautiful how you just did it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think, look, as I'm going to put myself in the position of a child. And and I think back to my own childhood, if my parents talked to me that way, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: holy cow, would that feel amazing? Yes whether we like it or not, like we are the most important people in their lives, whether we Mm -hmm. recognize it, whether they recognize it, we are the most important people in their lives and they don't do what we say. They do what we do, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful because if we can do this for them as imperfectly as we'll do it, you know, uh, but with practice, we get better. Yeah. That just gives them a model for how they can do it for themselves too. So I just Absolutely. think it's beautiful.
1: That's the idea is they're able to learn to self-validate. Yeah. They're able to learn to identify I am suffering, I'm in pain, and I see it for myself. So sometimes the the phrase, I'm the one that I've been waiting for really comes oh. out in this moment of I've been waiting for myself to acknowledge that I'm in pain, that I'm suffering, that I'm overwhelmed. And so when we have the people around us acknowledge that with us then we can lean into that and acknowledge it for ourselves. And that can help with the other big piece that ends up happening with eating disorders, which is shame. I'm not good enough. I need to hide this. What will you think of me if I'm suffering from this? When we have caregivers come towards them and say, of course this is happening for you because of this and because of this and because of this and I'm here and it's okay and we're gonna figure this out then they can actually lean into that and start doing that process for themselves. Mm.
0: Oh, it's really beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Thank you for all of that. That just gets to my heart. (laughs) You know, uh, it's really, really beautiful. Um, Okay. So I I think that what we really want to do is, is give our listeners a message of hope. If you know someone who's struggling with this, if, if your child is, if, you know, you're just listening for, for, for whatever reason, there is hope. And can you walk me through how there is hope and, and what can help somebody struggling get to the other side?
1: Yeah. You know, I think part of the reason that I, i work with this illness and have so much hope. I think I've been working with this illness for 16 years now. And I am still very hopeful um, is because of the caregivers that I've worked with, because Mm. seeing their heart and their skill and their intuition um, and their just engagement in this process and the ability for that to not only, like we've said, help their loved one, but help the whole family and help the caregiver themselves. So So eating disorders are treatable and they don't, you don't get better from any mental illness in isolation. So first and foremost, step in, you know, as a caregiver, don't be afraid to step in, even if you don't quite know what to do, even if it could be messy or could create conflict, step in and look out for some of these signs of where they may be struggling and where there's kind of pain or stress. Um, and like we just talked about, bring it up, you know, say something, um, and if you're not sure if it's happening or if you're in the process of working with it directly, eating meals together, you know, it seems so simple, but often what ends up happening is patients who people who are suffering from eating disorders start eating in isolation so that nobody can see their behaviors, whether it's yeah. binge eating or restricting or whatever it is, um, also exercise. So just starting to step into these areas of their lives. So encouraging meals together, encouraging exercise and activity together. So you can see, is this excessive? Are there any extremes? And then next to that, if you think all of that is true, you're still concerned, then it's time to reach out to people who know eating disorders well. So you're looking for physicians who can do the medical workup. You're looking for registered dietitians who have eating disorders expertise. Okay. There are a lot of different types of dietitians and nutritionists out there. They're all wonderful in their specific scopes. Look for someone who has the scope of treating eating disorders because it, it's, it's, it's its own specialty. Oh, I didn't know and that. It's, it's kind of the same with therapists. You know, It's It's kind of like a you want to just go to any therapist to work with autism. It's similar with eating disorders. You go to specific therapists who have trained in working with eating disorders. So that's kind of your, we call it the three legged stool yes. the physician, the dietitian, and the therapist. And you want to pull that team together. Oh, fantastic!
0: Fantastic. Okay. Well, I love that you say it's highly treatable. I love that there is hope. And I, and I think that, you know, with every episode that I do, this is all about hope that, yeah, we recognize like there's some heavy stuff. There's some hard stuff that we face as parents. And I absolutely love what you said that we do not get better in isolation. And you said it for mental illness, but I think in general, yeah. we just don't thrive in isolation. And so many of us are in isolation we just don't realize you know, and, and this is, you know, that's not just related to eating disorders. That's in general, you know,
1: Um, it's it's, after the last few years, I think, yeah, recognize it even more after the pandemic and just the, how essential it is to be in connection, be in relationship and, and be seen and understood by others. And that's really the opportunity you have in working on this recovery.
0: Well, I am just so happy that this, that this
1: issue has you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the work that that. you're doing. Like you just, I, I would reach out to you in a heartbeat if oh. uh, if if I was in a position with a child. So I just want to say thank you so much, and you are so kind and and giving as well in terms of giving us some resources for the parent toolbox. So please look for those. Um, you've got a couple of handouts for us, um, and it's just to help you navigate this, to understand it, and uh, know what to do if you're faced with this. And and look, please share this with somebody who you also if you know they need help, please, please, please share it because we are, we, I mean, we've got to do that, right? It does take a village to raise a child and we have to look out for each other. And if you know somebody who's in it, they might not even be able to stick their head up out of the, the, the situation they're in to even know what to do next. And so we need to help each other out. So uh, Dr. Elizabeth Easton, you are wonderful. I am um, so happy to know you and to have talked to you. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you would share it with someone who you think needs to hear this message too. And please don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I would be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. And if you like my content and want more, please visit my site, parentingforconnection.com, where you can find out more about my coaching, my courses, and all things parenting. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace, connection, and joy.